0: Time we're back into our uh, series on the Gospel of John, and uh, today we're calling our message a free lunch and a frightening storm. We're in chapter six, John chapter six. Well, there is a signpost forest. Signpost Forest, just out of Watson Lake, Yukon, in the, in Canada. It was started in 1942 when a soldier named Carl Lindley was injured while working on the highway there, and he was taken to the Army Air Station at Watson Lake to recuperate. And in those days, a simple signpost pointed out the distance to various points along the highway, and it seems that one of those signposts was damaged by a, a bulldozer. And so uh, Corporal Lindley was ordered to repair the sign, and he decided to personalize the job just a bit by adding a sign pointing towards his own hometown of Danville, Illinois, and putting in the distance. And It wasn't long before several other people had added direction to their hometowns, and so then the idea just kind of snowballed, and it became kind of a common thing, particularly on military bases around the world. Well, since those early days, uh, this tourist uh, continued the the tradition of signposts, and as of 2021, there are more than 80,000 Signs from around the world there in the signpost forest. It takes up several acres. Huge areas are being added on constantly, uh, winding their ways through the trees there. There are street signs and welcome signs and signatures on dinner plates and license plates from around the world as people add to the signpost forest. I thought that was kind of interesting because I've been thinking a lot about signposts as we worked our way through the gospel of John. And, and, you know, throughout our own life, we encounter signposts, right? They point us in various directions. Sometimes they're positive and healthy directions. And sometimes uh, signs are pointing us in the direction of danger or deception, areas that we shouldn't go Well, so far in our our journey through the gospel of John, we've discovered that John has included seven distinct signs, specific actions and miracles that Jesus used to point in the direction of his lordship. Last Sunday, we completed the first section of the Gospel of John, chapters one through five. And we called that first section beholding Christ or seeing Christ, the Son of God. In that first section, we considered the first of the three, the first three of the seven distinct signs. Sign number one, you might remember, all the way back in chapter two was when Jesus turned the water into wine. It was his first public miracle and it signified that Jesus, was lord of nature lord of created things and then in chapter four we looked at sign number two the healing of the government Official's son remember it was a long distance miracle and it showed us that jesus is lord of life he provides not just physical life but more importantly spiritual life on the condition of faith and then the third great sign in John's gospel was back in chapter five. And we saw that Jesus healed a paralyzed man, a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years as we learn that Jesus is the Lord of restoration, the restorer of lost powers. No matter how broken we are, Jesus is able to provide life and set us on a path towards wholeness, restoration, restoration. Well, today we are entering into the second part of John's gospel. We're going to call this second section from verse, uh, chapter 6 through 14, Following Christ, the man of God. And here in the first part of chapter 6, our text for today, we are going to be introduced to signs numbers 4 and 5. These are two connected signs that point us to two more key truths about Jesus. And so as we pick up this story, we read that the crowds are following Jesus. They're following him on the account of the signs, the miracles that he's been performing. And though John has just so far recorded three signs for us, remember that at the end of his gospel, which we looked at all the way back at the beginning, remember that he wrote this This thesis statement, this purpose statement, when he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's John's key statement. And so it's no surprise is it? That the crowds are following Jesus? He's a miracle worker. He's doing amazing things, and people want to be around him. Well, now, sometime after the events in chapter 5, which we looked at last week, perhaps as much as a year after, we come to the events in chapter 6. Remember that John's gospel is not necessarily really chronological. He's dropping in on these key events, and so we're Jumping forward in time a bit in the ministry of Jesus in chapter 6. And we come to some significant events. And I'd like to invite you to read this first part of the text together with me. Verses 1 through 7. Let's read this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? He said this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And so we come to this uh, pretty famous event of Jesus. Often we call it the feeding of the 5,000. I want you to notice that the biggest festival and the feast of the year is about to take place, Passover. But before that, before that big feast happens, Jesus takes his disciples, his 12 guys, on a, on a kind of a field trip across the Sea of Galilee. And it's, a, it, it's an area they would have been familiar with, particularly those disciples that had made their living fishing on this sea. But Jesus takes them across and up on the mountainside, and he sits down with them. Now, we know from the other Gospels that tell about this account that Jesus took them there purposely to escape the crowds, crowds everywhere. Life for Jesus and the 12 had been a bit crazy, if you will. And so the guys needed to be debriefed from all the stuff that had been going on, as well as perhaps just to get some good old-fashioned and R. And so Jesus says, let's go across the lake and and just get away. But no sooner had Jesus sat down with the guys than he looks up and he sees this great crowd that's been tracking him down. And here they come. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He is like a celebrity that cannot get away from the fans and the paparazzi. They're just there all the time. Well, now, instead of being, though, annoyed by these stalkers, if you will, who have rushed, uh, you know, ruined his little seaside getaway with the boys, instead of being annoyed by that, in Mark's gospel, in, in verse 34 of chapter six, we're told that Jesus saw the crowds were like a sheep without a shepherd, and he had great compassion for them, and he began to teach them many things. Now, John tells us that Jesus' compassion was also for their immediate physical needs. And so he looks at this crowd, and even while they're still gathering, he is concerned for their physical well-being. And so he turns to Philip, one of his guys, and he says, where are we going to get bread for all these people to eat? Now, of the 12 disciples... Philip is the natural one to ask this question because he is from Bethesda, which is a nearby city to the area that they're in right now. And so if any of the disciples know where they might find enough food for this large crowd, it's Philip, since they're in his neighborhood, if you will. Well, John is, he's kind of like somebody that tells a story but, and they can't help but giving away spoilers, dropping hints about what's going to happen next. He's he's probably not the kind of guy that you'd want to go and see a movie with because he'd probably tell you the end before it got there. But he wants to be very clear in verse six that when Jesus asked Philip this question, he already knows the answer. He already knows the answer. And that reminds me that, you know, in Scripture, in Scripture, God knows our needs before we even ask him. And friends, if if Jesus is aware of our needs, then we know that he is more than capable of meeting them sometimes before we even know what they are, let alone ask him. So before the crowds had gathered, before the question of food ever came up, Jesus knows this crowd's needs. He already knew what he was going to do. But he asked the question of his disciples to see how far they had come in their faith and understanding of who he was. And so John says it was a test. And it was a test that they didn't do super great at, I guess. If, if they're on a, you know, a grade, you know, they didn't get an A. They might have got a C. They might have just squeaked by with a D. I don't know. But it reminds me that as Christ followers, we are still learning, aren't we? Still growing in our faith. We never reach the point of knowing everything, of having all the answers. But we persist in following Jesus. That's why we need to keep spending time in the word. We need to continue to learn and apply the truths uh, of God and, and his things to our life. And so it's good to know that even the 12, even these guys so close to Jesus, they had to keep learning and growing in their faith. And that, that makes me feel good. I hope it makes you feel good as well. Well, you know, poor Philip is stumped. He's stumped. He can only think of an immediate economic solution. And so he says to Jesus, it would take eight months' wages 200 denarii. Today, that would be about $30,000. He says, Lord, it would take this huge amount of money to buy enough bread for all these people just for them to have an appetizer. And so even if they could find a bakery big enough and had that much money, it would only be enough to supply everybody with one tiny bite, let alone a satisfying meal. The situation is impossible. There's no way it can be done. That's what Philip is saying here. Well, just then another one of the disciples, Andrew, shows up on the scene. He comes back. You might remember Andrew from chapter one because we learned that Andrew brought his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. And so what is he doing? He's doing it again. Bringing someone to Jesus. And so To me, it's clear that Andrew has learned at least one key truth, and that is that Jesus wants us to bring others to him. I hope you understand that it's a key truth of God's disciples. That's us, learning, doing followers. He wants us to bring others to him. That's why we've been bugging you for six weeks now about who are you going to invite next Sunday to Easter Sunday? Who are you going to bring? We provided those cards. There's more cards in the lobby by the entry door. Pick them up today. Who are you going to bring to Jesus? Because that's our task. That's his will and his desire for us that we would be like Andrew and introduce people to Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know everything. All we have to do is say, come and see this amazing guy jesus that has impacted my life in such amazing ways and i want you to know about it too well andrew what's he been doing he's been out canvassing the crowd and he's checking out what's available and he manages to find a young boy apparently the only one who'd had the foresight to pack a lunch this day now that's all he had is a small lunch All he's got is five loaves and two fishes. John mentions that they are barley loaves. And we might think, oh, that sounds like a substantial meal, uh, a nice picnic that this boy has packed. But when we think of barley loaves, we we probably think of something, you know, a loaf of bread, like a nice artisan loaf of bread. That's not what this kid had. In Jesus' day, barley was much cheaper than wheat. And so barley loaves were the food of the poorest of the poor. And what's more, it wouldn't have been loaves of bread like we think, but maybe like small dinner rolls or like a little pita pocket that this boy had. And, And the fish he had, it wouldn't have been a nice grilled salmon with some nice topping on it or Chilean sea bass that you get in some nice restaurant. No, it's some small pickled fish, dried fish like sardines that makes that dry, crusty bread at least palatable. So this is no fancy picnic lunch. It's a basic, meager meal. It's a broke person's meal. But one that this boy and many in that crowd would be very familiar with. This was not a wealthy region. It was simple, basic food, and it was all that they had. And so Andrew brings this poor boy with his small, simple food forward, and he knows it's not going to go too far. It's barely enough to feed one child, let alone the disciples. And forget about the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. And so Andrew really is, is driving home Philip's point. There's no way. There's no way, Lord, that we can feed the people. All we've got is this. What little they have is laughable but it's not laughable to Jesus, is it? Jesus is not laughing. Let's read the next section together. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Amen. The word of God. And so Jesus tells the disciples to get the crowd settled down in the green grass and then quite simply, without pausing, without a concern, Jesus takes what little they have and he gives thanks for it. And then he starts handing the bread and the fish out. And he keeps handing it out. And he keeps handing it out. Everyone who's there, all 5,000 plus, get something to eat. And amazingly, the food never runs out. The crowd is fed and it's more than a meager portion. They eat their fill and they're satisfied as much as they wanted, they ate. I kind of think it must have been like uh, after we eat Thanksgiving dinner, right? And you're just stuffed full, your stomach hurts, you gotta unloosen your belt a bit. You are full. I think that's what happened to the people as they sat in the grass there. They are full. In fact, there is so much there that not only do the people eat and eat and eat, there's even leftovers, just like Thanksgiving, right? Leftovers. Although the food was miraculously provided, it came from nowhere, and it costs nothing. Jesus doesn't let it get treated lightly, though. He doesn't let good food go to waste, and so he commands the guys to pick it up. 200 denarii. Wouldn't have been given the people more than just a tiny mouthful, but from the beginning of the five loaves, from nothing, what's left after the people eat is an enormous 12 bushel baskets full. That word for basket is a specific word. I don't remember the gallon amount, but it's a large basket full, all right? This was no, you know, little doggy bag they're taking home. 12 baskets, and don't you find it interesting that there's a basket for each one of the disciples? Can you imagine them lugging those big baskets back to the boat or whatever they're gonna do with them? It's amazing, isn't it? An amazing sign of God's compassion and provision for his people. This is the fourth sign in John's gospel, the fourth sign he records, the feeding of the crowd, and it teaches us that Jesus is the food by which we live. He is the food by which we live. He is able to sustain the spiritual life that he creates. And he provides all that we need in abundance. When we get into the second half of chapter 6, just as a little preview here, Jesus is going to take this miracle and he's going to apply it to himself. And he's going to say, I am the bread of life. We're not going to get to that next week because it's Easter. So we're going to jump ahead to the end of the gospel kind of like John does. All right, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna be the spoiler in case you didn't know. There's a resurrection coming. I think most of you are aware of that. We're gonna deal with that next week and then the week after we'll come back and pick it up where we leave off today. But Jesus is the food by which we live and he sustains our spiritual life. So with such a great crowd, it's unlikely that everyone saw or even heard what Jesus did. But you can imagine what it's like. Word travels fast, doesn't it? And so I just imagine as they're eating there that people start talking about what's going on. People are talking. They're in groups. They're talking. Hey, did you see what happened? Do you know what's going on? And pretty soon the people know that this is not just a free lunch. That this is a sign. A sign from God himself. And they understand something important has just taken place. John has given us some clues to help us understand the significance of this sign. I want you to remember back to verse 4. He made what appeared to be just kind of a throwaway line in verse 4 when he said, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That means it's very soon. The fact that it was near the time of the Passover when many Jews would be traveling towards Jerusalem doesn't just help explain why there's such a, a big crowd wandering here in the wilderness where Jesus is, but it also helps us understand what this sign is pointing towards. Remember, our signposts are pointing towards something. This sign is pointing towards something significant. The Passover was the most important Jewish festival. It was a celebration, a memorial of God's amazing deliverance of his people it was a time when the Jewish people looked back and remembered how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And they would tell the old stories, pass them down from generation to generation of how Moses had led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And when they remembered God's provision for them as they wandered in the wilderness and how he gave them what? Manna bread from heaven. So do you see the connections being made here? But the Passover wasn't the only, uh, only a time for looking back and remembering, but it was also a time to look ahead. The crowd would be familiar with the promise that God delivered through Moses in the wilderness. I want you to listen to these words from Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. When Moses uh, said this, he said, the Lord, this is actually, Uh, God speaking to Moses the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him that you shall listen so this is the message that Moses delivers to the people and he says God's bringing somebody bigger than me guys Moses was pretty big time right And Moses tells the people, God is bringing somebody more significant. And so I just imagine as these people are chewing on their bread, that they're kind of chewing over this in their minds as well. This this prophecy and what's going on here, bread, as they sit by the Sea of Galilee. And it's almost like you can see that light bulb going off. You know, that light bulb moment. Ah, I get it now. As all these connections fall into place and the people interpret this. Ah. this is a sign. Jesus has just given us a sign. And so in verse 14, we read this. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Not just a prophet, the prophet who is to come into the world. And so they connect this event. Their free lunch that they just got is connected back to Deuteronomy 18 and to Moses bringing that promise to the people. And so their expectations are suddenly high. Their hopes are high. Here was the one, the one that that Moses had promised, the one who would follow in Moses' footsteps, who would deliver God's people once again. And then, of course, all of these hopes are like, turbocharged during the time of the Passover. At the time of of the Passover, Jewish national pride was at an all-time high. It's kind of like the, the 4th of July for us. You know, flags and fireworks and parades and nostalgia. The Passover was that for the Jewish people. The air is charged with expectation, with energy. And this recent sign is the spark that is needed to set this crowd on fire. And so suddenly, here's a crowd of 5,000 men. Don't you think that would make a pretty sizable army? And what are they ready to do? They are ready to grab Jesus, literally, to violently seize him and make him their king. They are ready for him to take point as they march into Jerusalem, throw out the selfish two-faced politicians and drive the hated Roman infidels out of their homeland. And they believe Jesus is the guy who will do this for them. They're ready to do it by force if they have to. Which causes me to think about this. Do we ever seek to manipulate Jesus? We don't do that, do we? We would never try to squeeze Jesus into our own mold of our own expectations or preferences, would we? We would never try to make Jesus a king in our own image, would we? Something for you to chew on as you're thinking. You see, the crowds here only got the sign half right. Jesus had come to be king to deliver the people. But he had come to bring an even greater deliverance than Moses. He didn't come to physically deliver one nation at one time. No, he came to offer an eternal deliverance for all people in every age. And he's not about to allow this crowd to manipulate him, to force him to do what they want. So let's look at verse 15 here. Perceiving. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Isn't that an interesting phrase? How did that work? Here's all these people ready to grab him and I kind of picture it's one of those times where Jesus kind of just disappears. He just kind of melts into the crowd. Where'd he go? He's gone. Jesus quickly sends the disciples off, and I think he does that because he doesn't want them caught up by the crowd's wild thinking. After all, we know enough about the disciples to know what they're like, right? They're prone to arguing about who's the greatest, right? They're susceptible to temptation. So, so rather than having his guys jump on the bandwagon with the big crowd, Jesus packs them in a boat and says, get out of here. Get going. And then he heads for the hills, away from the crowd. He retreats to be alone on the mountain, presumably to spend time in prayer with the Father. And so all of this sets the stage for sign number five, the fifth sign. And this is where we learn that Jesus is our guide and our helper. He is our guide and our helper. No barriers can keep him away from his disciples in their time of need. And so let's read together the next section of our text, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Amen. The word of God. Ah, interesting things happening here. Jesus catches up with the disciples. It's the middle of the night. They haven't fared too well, have they? They've only made it a a few miles across the sea, not even halfway. And suddenly they're caught up in one of the storms or gales that that region is very prone to, and the sea is rough, and they are battling against it, scared, when all of a sudden, Jesus comes casually walking across the waves towards them. Isn't that an amazing scene? And John tells us what they feel. It says they are terrified the word there for frightened it means terrified this is not just ooh but this is wow and any thoughts of a connection to the exodus or to the parting of the red sea or Moses leading his people across the water none of that's in their mind at this point they are freaking out right they can't understand what they're seeing but Jesus knows their fear He knows their confusion. And as he did with the crowds, he has compassion on them. He doesn't play any tricks. He doesn't sneak up to the boat and say, boo, got you guys. No. He knows they're frightened and he stills their fear with a simple statement. Don't be afraid. It's just me. The phrase though that John uses is literally, I am. It is I. I am. Now, it sounds natural enough in this context, just Jesus identifying himself. Hey, guys, it's me. But given the context, with all of the parallels that we've seen to Moses and the Exodus, it is hard not to hear an echo of God's self-identification to Moses. You might remember back to the burning bush that Moses comes to, and he's in fear, right? Right? As this bush burns in the middle of the wilderness but doesn't consume itself and he has a conversation with God and God says, you're my man and you're gonna go and deliver my people and he says, oh, who are you? And God's answer is, I am. I am. You tell him I am sent you. That's God's personal holy name. And so as Jesus walks across the water and the guys are in fright and terror, he says, I am. I am. It's more than just a subtle hint. Jesus isn't just the promised prophet. He's not just a second Moses. He is even greater than that. He is God the great I am. And seeing the trouble his disciples were in, knowing their fear, Jesus performs another quiet miracle that none of us would know about except that John was there in the boat. And so as soon as Jesus steps into the boat, they immediately arrive at their destination on the other side of the sea. How did that work? It's like they kicked the engine in the high gear and just jetted through? No, it's a miracle. They're there. And so friends, today we have seen Jesus' great compassion for the needs of people. Jesus is the king who provides bread for his people who knows the needs of the world, and he calls us to join him in meeting those needs. Now, I suppose if the disciples had their way, they would have turned those crowds away. Get lost. Fend for yourselves. But friends, Jesus calls us to pursue the needs of those around us. He promises and invites us to just simply offer what we have. And when we do that, when we offer what we have, he promises to take what we offer in faith and when we give it to him in trust, he will use it to accomplish great things. Supernatural things. Miraculous things. God can do that through our meager offerings. Through our little loaves and dried fishes, our nothingness, God can multiply it. He can do that through you and I when we trust in him. Barley loaves, pickled fish, it's hardly a meal fit for a king, is it? And yet Jesus doesn't shy away from it. That's because he's come to turn this world upside down. He's not come to be the king the way that we might expect it He is the king who has come to offer eternal deliverance for those of us who will choose to follow him, to obey him as Lord, Master, Savior, ruler of our life. The story is told of the author and American humorist Mark Twain. It seems that he was accompanied by his wife on a visit to the Holy Land. And they were staying in Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee right where these events took place. And it was a moonlit night and the weather was perfect which gave Mr. Twain the romantic idea of taking his wife for a boat ride on the lake. So they walked down to the pier And Mark Twain inquired of the man sitting in the rowboat, how much he would charge to row them out on the water for a short trip. And Twain, of course, was dressed in his usual white suit and white shoes and white hat. And the oarsman, presuming him to be a wealthy rancher from the USA, said, well, I guess $25, which was a huge amount at that time. Well, Mr. Twain simply thanked him, and as he turned away with his wife on his arm, he was heard to exclaim, Now I know why Jesus walked. (laughs) Isn't that a great story? Friends, Jesus is still indeed the Lord who walks on water. He's the same. He calms our fears. And he takes us where we need to go. That is what this fifth sign recorded by John is all about. It teaches us that Jesus is our guide and our helper. Notice that he takes us where we need to go. Not necessarily where we want to go. No storms. No storms can keep him away from us in our time of need. But we must trust him. And that is the offer and the challenge for all of us. Is he king Jesus in our life? Do we accept him as king, as lord, as master, as ruler? Or do we seek to manipulate, to maintain control, to shape Jesus into the mold we think he ought to fit into? Will will we follow him into the crowds and into the storms and into the difficult and the challenging of this life? Or do we prefer just our own comfort? on our own terms. A Jesus that provides our desires and our timetable as we see fit. There's a whole theology based around that. It's a false theology. It's a lie from hell because that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. The Jesus of the scriptures is the one that says, follow me. And then he waits for us to choose to follow him as learning, doing followers. And so, friends, may we have him rule over us. May he direct us. May he guide us. May we submit in humility and obedience to his way. Let's pray that he helps each of us to do just that. Father God,